Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 145 for the 29th of April, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Duckland once again. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. This time you're in London, aren't you? I am in London. And that's London, England, not London, Ontario. True. Site of the famous uh, Canada Revenue Agency hack, isn't it? I'm in the other London, I guess the big London, because of uh, InfoSecurity Europe is this week. More credit card shenanigans from Chester, but this time you're not just going to be doing Magstripe US style, you're going to be uh, digging into UK style chips, aren't you, for the chip and pin cards? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some chip demos on, on stage as well as kind of talk a little bit about the differences in the chips that are out there. Uh, the UK uses a different standard of chip than uh, some other countries like Canada, and the the impending release of chips in the United States has another twist on it as well. So I'm going to be going through all the details of that uh, on the stand uh, every afternoon here at InfoSec. So in a way, it sounds like the chips that you get on credit cards, although we just talk about chip and pin, it's a little like mobile telephones in the early days where you'd buy one and then you'd rush off to a country like Korea and it wouldn't work at all because although they were similar, they weren't identical. Well, actually, they're all compatible in one way or another, but the standards have sort of marched on from the initial implementation. So backward compatibility comes to bite us in the bum once again. So that means that you could be in a country which has very secure chips, but they can fall back to the less secure mode. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. Just like cards can default back to a Stripe as well because of countries like the U.S. that are still using the Stripe standard. So um, we keep digging the hole a little deeper. Yes, and the longer ladder needed to get out. Unfortunately, one of the things we talked about in a couple of previous podcasts has happened, which is a zero-day vulnerability in uh, Internet Explorer that does impact Windows XP, except XP users won't be receiving a patch. Now, to be clear, as of right now, there's no patch available for any of the operating systems, but there is some mitigation against this vulnerability, right? Yes, uh, you're talking about the... Uh chattily named CVE 2014-1776, the year of U.S. independence, if I'm not wrong. Uh, easy way to remember it. Uh, details of exactly what's gone wrong are not clear. It turns out that Microsoft has a workaround whereby you unregister a DLL called vgx.dll. There are instructions on naked security showing you how to do this and showing you what will pop up on the screen if you get it right. And although that means you can't render VML in your browser, apparently it neutralizes this bug. So on Windows 7 and later, when you get a patch, you can turn this VGX.dll back on. On XP, you can just leave it turned off and you would at least have a, hopefully, a long-running mitigation for this vulnerability, which is, of course, because it's a zero day, being exploited in the wild right now. So the mitigation will work for Windows XP users as well as Vista and higher, but I guess they just have to permanently live without this VML? With XP, your best bet is turn this feature off, this VGX.dll off, live without VML forever, uh, or at least until you manage to get yourself off Windows XP, because this is what you predicted all that time ago. You'll have a maximum of one month after that last update, during which you will be as secure as everybody else. And then it's kind of open slather for XP forever and ever. Well, we got as, as close as we could to a month with, before the zero day dropped. And 
I expect that Microsoft will probably fix this zero day on the normal patch Tuesday in May, so it may not actually have too much impact aside from people having to manually apply that mitigation. Now, unfortunately, there's another zero day at the same time in Adobe Flash, and we should clarify that the known zero day against Internet Explorer uh, utilizes a Flash component to, I guess, manipulate some memory and things, but was not a Flash vulnerability. So this is a completely separate zero day in Adobe Flash that there is a fix for, um, and, and it looks like uh, that that's available for Internet Explorer 10 and 11 for Windows 8 and Windows RT users. Um, it's been bundled into the latest version of Chrome, and it's available from Adobe for download. That's correct. So since there is some kind of targeted attack apparently going around with this Flash vulnerability, you may as well grab that Adobe update ASAP. No reason to wait. Yeah, I agree. And I, I guess I'd choose a patch over a, a mitigation, although for XP users, um, the, the, the mitigations will be more and more important as Microsoft. I mean, that, that's really going to be the problem for folks on XP is this kind of cascading waterfall of continually trying to keep up with mitigations, which for a really short period of time might be possible. But in the long term, it's, it's not tenable. So it's, it's much better that we have fixes like we do from Adobe. And I'm sure Microsoft will provide those fixes for Windows 7, 8, RT, Vista. I heard somebody uses Vista. I, I, I'm, I'm going to exclude Vista from future podcasts, but let's just assume when I say 7, I mean Vista until Vista's dead. Yes, I keep forgetting that as well, and I glibly write in Naked Security articles, users of Windows 7 and later, and you think, I'd better mention the other three chaps and put Vista in there. <laughs> That's right. So I, I, got, I, I think this is good news. I, uh, the next story was interesting to me, which is the folks over at OpenBSD, fellow Canadians, decided to, I guess, fork the OpenSSL code after the Heartbleed bug and kind of decide they're just going to fix it, right? Going to kind of rewrite it, uh, try to stay, you know, compatible as a drop-in replacement, but clean out the cruft and, and shore it up, if you will. I don't think Theo used the word cruft, Chester. I'd need... <laughs> Possibly not, but, you know, this is a... We don't want to get an explicit tag on the software security chat chat, so we'll stick with cruft. Yes, I think it's a great idea. The OpenBSD guys have done this sort of thing before. Uh, rather than starting entirely from scratch with programs that people know and love, they've looked at how they can uh, divide and conquer, how they can break them up perhaps into multiple parts so that each part is a process of its own so it doesn't all stand and fall together, how they can look at how it allocates and manages memory, uh, maybe get the code into a slightly more normalized form that makes it more maintainable. And the other thing that the OpenBSD guys love to do is to uh, write code by removing lines, if you know what I mean. Their idea of a productive day of coding is actually to remove a couple of kilo lines of code rather than to add them. As I said on Naked Security, we've shown that it's an urban myth that with many eyes, all bugs are shallow. But the flip side of that is with no eyes at all, every bug will stay covered forever. Well... Clearly not forever, as Adobe and Microsoft have demonstrated this week, but um, it's, it's less likely that the good guys will find it. Maybe we can leave it that way. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, that there are never no eyes. There are always some. We just don't know who they are. Yeah, exactly. Now, at the same time as this Libra SSL project kicked off, we also have something from the Linux Foundation where they decided, I guess, to kind of bring the community together to see what coders, enthusiasts people that can perhaps donate money to the cause can all rally around the OpenSSL team and, and help fund it into a, being a bigger project? 
The thing that the Linux Foundation has come up with is called the Core Infrastructure Initiative, or CII. And it's not quite bankrolling OpenSSL, although the initial project that will probably get the first funding, not necessarily, very probably, is OpenSSL, obviously. But the idea is to get vendors together to the tune of time and management and money. And let's see if we can have some funds that we can disperse, not just on OpenSSL, but on all these giant lumps of code that we've all come to rely upon. And let's see if we can avoid that that famous problem, you know, that there's a problem comes in that's so easy that anybody could fix it. So everybody assumed that somebody would do it, and in the end, nobody did it. So let's change the rules of that a little bit so that actually we do get more people looking at critical code from a security point of view, trying to make it better for everybody. I think that's the biggest, most important item of all of this, which is the community recognizing how important these things are, and then whatever ways we can contribute, everybody coming at it. And if you're a vulnerability researcher and you can find vulnerabilities and things like OpenSSL and help us uh, you know, responsibly disclose those things and help the programmers better secure the product that we're all relying on, that's great. If your talent is documentation, that's fantastic. If you're a rich guy that can pay a bunch of us to go work on this, that's pretty cool too. Like whatever you have to offer, is it time? Is it money? Is it talent? What do we have? And then how do we use it? If you remember, Microsoft announced something last year where they would pay 100,000 US dollars if you could basically get a complete system compromise, but you'd get 150K if you could not only show how to break in, but come up with a good foundation for actually preventing your exploit working in the future. If memory serves, the first guy to get that one of those 100,000 bounties actually didn't get the 50,000 as well. Yeah, it's been, it's been a common refrain amongst those of us that attend conferences that too many of the talks are about break and not very many talks are, the, are about fixing things or better yet, not just fixing, but preventing. So I, I like to see both the cash bonuses and the recognition bonuses that go along with, hey, this clever idea that's going to protect all of us you know, we, we hear about the people who discover given vulnerabilities on a regular basis in the press, but how come nobody's talking about the guy who came up with the concept of address space layout randomization or data execution prevention or certain things like that, that that we rely on every day that actually do make us safer? I guess one problem is, you know, if you're on the conference circuit and you're looking to get a paper accepted, then I found my way into the Sony PlayStation 7 is always going to be a more glamorous, more attractive title to get more people into the talk than, guys, I've been fuzzing away at this operating system for five years and I haven't got anywhere, which could actually be an equally important result. But it's never going to have that uh, wow factor that would make it the sort of talk that thousands of people would turn up for, sadly. Well, I'm going to insert a mild pitch into that and say, well, you haven't been to InfoSec Europe 2014 because our talks are going to be both interesting and constructive. So folks should try to come out and see us if they're anywhere within the transport vicinity of London. And it's not too late to jump onto Sophos.com, put InfoSec in the search bar, and the first link should be a page that will let you get a free pass. So you can go to Earl's Court and watch Chester um, hack away at credit cards, show you how chip and pin works, and uh, talk about how the future can be rosy, not not just all a load of disaster. And a little bit of uh, Android malware as well in the, in the morning. I love the smell of Android malware in the morning. <laughs> Are you allowed to say that on a podcast? 
Well, it's a good segue, Doc, because it allows me to end the chat chat with just a a brief little story. I like your stories, Chester. So security is by design, not by accident, right? And, And I was the technical product manager when we designed our email appliance. And I sat in some meetings for weeks upon weeks with, with the engineer, my engineering colleagues discussing how we could provide secure remote access to our appliances. We knew that we needed to be able to get in, have our support people be able to go hand in hand with our customers to assist them when they had a problem. But we desperately did not want to leave open ports listening on the internet or weird cloud connections that were automatically, you know, backhauling things into Sophos's network without permission and all this kind of stuff. And we fretted and fretted and worked through this for weeks trying to figure out what is a way that we can always have the explicit permission of our customer, but still provide this convenience of access and support. And it works brilliantly the way we provide support tunnels in our, our appliance products. But, it, but it's by design, right? It wasn't by accident. I think what you're trying to say, Chester, is if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Absolutely. And uh, we'll, we'll leave that as our, our uh, once a year commercial message on the Software Security Chat Chat. <laughs> and that concludes episode 145. Uh, as always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And for the latest podcasts and technos and chat chats and all the stuff that Duck and I and others at Sophos work so hard to produce for you, you can get all that stuff at soundcloud.com slash Sophos Security. Until next time, stay secure.